back with our second podcast. Uh, so I'm Brett. And I'm Melissa. And this is Dr. Irfan Khan uh, with Circuit Clinical. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Great to be here. Thank you guys for the invitation. Um, Irfan Khan, I'm a cardiologist by training. Uh, I was lucky enough to train in Cleveland where there was a lot of interest in clinical trials as part of the care journey for patients. I came to Buffalo about 15 years ago, was lucky enough to practice at uh, Mercy Hospital um, and was part of a very large successful group that did research. And uh, as part of that work, um, really saw that when you're doing it in a large hospital, it's obviously um, a way to meet the people who are already inside the hospital. But there's this huge other group of people who never see access to clinical trials. So Circuit was born from the idea that, uh, that it would be cool to bring clinical trials to the rest of the country. And, and, and that's really been our work over the last five years. So what was the original picture? You know, we're both startup founders. We know that the journey changes along the way. So what was the original picture? And now that, you know, you have a lot more clarity with your goals, where what is the path forward? What is the final picture? And where do you really want to see Circuit go? So it's a great question. I, I like uh, Miranda Flores. Is, uh, she she uh, found CEO founder of uh, Made in L.A. And she was the Forbes quote of the day got to be six years ago, and I read it once and I never forgot it. She said, great founders are hard on the vision and soft on the journey. So our North Star really hasn't changed in, in seven years, right? Um, Circuit's mission is to transform the experience of how people find, choose, and participate in clinical trials. How we do that has changed over the years. How we approach it, where we bring the offering, that's changed. Uh, elements, the clinical and the digital in which services, that, that's evolved as we've learned from the market, we've learned from patients, we've learned from uh, physicians what they're looking for. Uh, but the general idea of really being able to move research to where people access their care and to make the, the online search a different experience, that's, that's still stayed the same over the years. Awesome. I mean, I totally understand this conversation. Obviously, Infuse Health started as a platform for recruiting blood donors and then pivoted to clinical trials. So it's really never a straight path, as people think. But usually you have to stick with the vision and, you know, what it is that you're trying to do, either with bringing in more representation or diversity among blood donors or with clinical trials. So again, Dr. Erfan, you and I have a lot in common. I am a nurse, you're a doctor. So we want to talk a little bit more about, you know, career path changes and how we live, oh, how you got from that point of saying, okay, you know, as a doctor, now I'm going to change career paths and become an entrepreneur. So would you like to share a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, I think the heart of it is, is that, uh, you know, you get a little older and you realize that it's going to be about impact. Um, uh, for me, my dad got Parkinson's and Alzheimer's about uh, 10 years ago, and uh, in the window where a clinical trial would have made a difference, uh, we weren't able to access one. And I'm, I'm very health literate and very well connected in healthcare, uh, and so are my friends. And so, you know, it was kind of a reminder of something I'd, I'd known working in, 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 um, in Cleveland and in Buffalo, which is that very few of us have access to clinical trials. And so, so for me, the, the push was, you know, I think I was in my mid-40s, that feels younger every day, and, and the idea was that I was still young enough to operate at scale, and I was maybe experienced enough to be able to bring a set of ideas and experiences and, and, um, and a group of people together. Uh, the problem's a big one, right? It's, it's great that we're both working in this space because it's going to take, you know, a hundred more like us sort of thinking about ways to connect research to healthcare and, and research to patients directly uh, to have any kind of impact on this. And so that was, for me, that was the, the key, was that how do you 
spend your time in a way that has maximal impact. Operating's fun. I mean, putting in pacemakers and burning out short circuits, you know, it's great work. They, they pay you well. Everybody calls you doctor. People are nice to you. Uh, but it's one problem, one patient, one family at a time. So it's super honorable work, and I'm really proud that I got a chance to do it. But when I look back at it, I think what attracted me to taking the risk of leaving medicine was the idea that if we could be successful in bringing together a really great group of people to work on the mission, and if we could be tough enough to kind of get through those things that stop most startups, uh, then we'd have massive impact at scale. And that's kind of exciting. And that, that's, you know, some of the rewards are being seen now and, and we're seeing through the pandemic. And I think there's more to come in the future. That is so exciting. Um, and I would go on to ask the most obvious question. What has been the hardest part of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think, the, you know, you could, I'm sure I could convince you the answer is it's all hard. Like there's, there's lots and lots of hard. There's no shortage of hard in entrepreneurship. Um, I think that, uh, so my training was good, good experience for this in some respects, right? So I'm a, I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist. I spend a lot of time working in ambiguous situations and, and startup land is the most ambiguous situation you could possibly be in, right? You're, you're trying to solve problems with building a great team. You're trying to solve problems with product market fit. You're trying to solve problems for real people. Um, and then you're trying to convince uh, a relatively conservative set of industries, healthcare and, and, and uh, the drug development industry, to try something new, even if it's compellingly logical. It still takes time for people to, to change their working paradigms, um, and even if you're solving for major efficiencies. So I look at it like, like I think the hardest part is, is that how do you build the right kind of trust that can take very, very smart people who have a solution they at least understand, even if they agree it's broken, and convince them that you're the ones who can provide something accelerative and transformative in that space. That, that's the hardest part, I think, is just really, you know, people talk in these very abstract terms. To me, I think it's all about building great relationships, delivering on your promises, understanding your limitations. And, and I would say maybe the, uh, the, the last part of this is doing all of that in the face of a global pandemic and, and really at the same time, or maybe as a result of it, the single largest change in the American workforce's attitude towards what work is, where it happens, and what a career is. And so I think all of that together has created a lot of ambiguity that's made it challenging, but I mean, I think we're pretty good at it, and, and, uh, and it's kind of fun. Once you, once you figure out what it is you're good at and how you sort of play the game, I think, I think that's also the source of the, uh, the, the pride and the, uh, the joy we take in the work we do. Definitely. I mean, you are an inspiration to all of us. Uh, and, you know, we're really happy having you here on the podcast. And also, you know, for those of you who don't know, I am aware that Dr. Efren was very pushful with us being here in Buffalo and, you know, Infuse Health coming here um, with 43 North. So the question is, Dr. Erfan, what did you see in Infuse Health and our mission of bringing clinical trials to Africa as a whole that made you push for us to come here and try to grow our company from Buffalo? Yeah, I will certainly um, return the compliment. Um, I love the mission. And uh, I think, you know, I think great startups especially in those early days, they need really strong, motivated, dynamic founders. You're clearly one of them. You, you believe in the mission. Um, you're authentic. You're willing to fight for the things you believe in. It doesn't guarantee victory, but, uh, but it certainly makes for the right kind of journey. And I think people like that have the ability to attract other great people to work on the same thing. They, they learn to share power. They learn to solve problems. So everything, I, you know, I remember when, uh, when they first brought uh, Infuse to us to, to look at and say, hey, you know, 
would you be interested in mentoring? Would you be interested in being helpful? Do you see this competitive? I, I remember literally saying what I just said a few minutes ago that you could have a hundred circuits and a hundred infuses and we'd still be short. You know, like we're still not anywhere near solving these uh, high scale challenges. I mean, both of us know that. So we'll put it this way, 3% of American physicians do research and less than 3% say they would refer outside their own practice, which means that 95% of us, everybody on this podcast in this room, everybody listening to this, you have almost no access to clinical trials as a care option unless your doctor happens to be in an academic medical center and doing research, you know, or willing to refer. So that's 5% of Americans have access, let alone what's the number around the world that's approaching vanishingly small numbers, probably close to 0%. So, you know, I, I think part of what I loved was that, that while we think the our space is creating new opportunities for Americans to access research as a care option, there's a much bigger opportunity when we think about how do we change the the composition of, of who gets the opportunity? How do we make clinical trials more equitable and diverse? And uh, certainly, a very appealing way to do that is to, is to, is to go to the most diverse continent on the planet. And uh, so I, I just love the work you're doing. And I, I see it, I've always seen it as deeply complementary. And, uh, and the kind of thing that, again, we just don't have enough founders who want to take on this incredibly hard problem when they can build a company out of technology that gets you to click on a link. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, I think it was Elon Musk um, after Zip2, it famously said that, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've built this generation of geniuses who are focusing the entire might of their mind on getting human beings to click on ads. And, you know, there are still great companies to be built, and they're built by people wanting to do things like unlock all of the clinical trial opportunity and potential in Africa. That's pretty cool. Talking about diversity, why do you think it's important to, for us to, you know, drive more diversity in clinical trials? We get this talk a lot. We have had a lot of conferences about this. But as an operator and as somebody who is actively facing this challenge head on every day, why do you think this is such an important mission? Yeah, I think there's three ways to look at this. And, um, and I think all are perfectly reasonable motivators. So, Without judgment, I think here are the three motivators, and there's there's nothing wrong with any of them. So one is, it's the right thing to do. Uh, the second one would be is, it's good business. Uh, and, and, and the third one is, it's good science. And so I'll just kind of roll through them. So is it the right thing to do? We want to solve for inequities in our healthcare. I'll use the United States, uh, where I've spent my career, as an example. Um, you know, it is very clear, with lots of data backing it up, that depending on where you live, depending on what kind of education you have, and depending on your race in many exp uh, experiences, you, your ability to access healthcare, just basic healthcare, is dictated um, the day you were born. And uh, you know that's not a very American thing. You know, we, 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 we're the land of the free, right? And the home of the brave, right? So we can do better than that. And so if we imagine a world in which um, Everybody has the ability to access the leading edge uh, of care opportunities while they're in these difficult situations. Well, that's the right thing to do. So I would argue there is a strong moral imperative to create health care that's uh, equally accessible. Uh, and so that's, that's, you know, at the center of my thinking, that kind of motivates me. And it makes, you know, because solving for this problem is not easy. If it was easy, it would have been solved 50 or 60 years ago, right? And so, so the challenge is, is that without anyone actively trying to prevent diversity, 
just certain kinds of organizational systems are in place that make it very hard for, for researchers of care option uh, to move out into the community. So that's, that's, I would say, directionally, nothing wrong with just wearing our hearts in our sleeves and saying, it's the right thing to do. It's the America I want to live in. It's the America I want my kids to inherit. So um, it's good use of my time. Uh, it also happens to be really good science. Uh, you know, you think about the PCSK9 inhibitors. You know, that whole field, which is now a multi-billion dollar engine, uh, preventing strokes and making the world a better place, uh, is only around because there just happened to be enough black patients who had chosen to participate in the trial. They weren't being sought out for their participation. And it was in that community, although the, the main group wasn't successful, the subset analysis showed value. And that led to the science that, that brought us the PCSK9 inhibitors. That's compelling. And, and you know, science is full of these serendipities. And if you're using an extremely homogenous population, mostly male, mostly white, um, you know, mostly over 65, you're just not giving yourself the opportunity to catch those other really serendipitous windows, right? Uh, so I think it's good science, right? And then at the end of the day, fortunately, it also happens to be a viable business model because you know, we are really in a space where there are these opportunities you can unlock. And if you unlock the next PCSK9 inhibitor, you know, while doing the right thing and building the, the America we want to live in, while, you know, celebrating good science, you've actually built yourself a billion-dollar vertical. So I think there's ways to think about this, both from the sponsor's perspective, and maybe I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek about this, uh, but I am being quite serious about the fact that there are, there are these healthcare alignments that happen where the right thing to do the good science thing to do, and a strong, defendable business model all come together. And I think that's really Infuse's work. I think that's Circuit's work. Uh, a bunch of other great teams working on this, as you said. Um, and progress is slow. So the challenge is, I think, that, that when people want something that's been historically unsuccessful at being solved, solved, they can choose two paradigms. They can focus on why hasn't it been solved yet, and this is like, you know, you know people are terrible and there's all these people, you know, nefariously acting against it. Or you can take what I like to call one of circuit's defining traits, kind of pragmatic optimism, and you can take the approach, it's very hard to change anything. It takes a lot of people, a lot of teams working collaboratively. It takes assuming the best about each other and assuming and, and really envisioning a better world and then doing the hard work to get there. So that's, that's kind of how I look at the problem with, with diversity in clinical trials. Wow, that is very insightful. Uh, I mean, listening to you talk, Dr. Efren, it's like, watching an artist world work so thank you <laughs> so much <laughs> at <know>. best. <laughs> so thank you so much for that um brett do you want to take it on from here yeah so i mean we hear a lot about decentralized clinical trials and i mean people generally know what a clinical trial is but this new decentralization thing aspect of it is is kind of fairly new so can you explain to us a little bit on how exactly that plays into Circuit's business model and the, the whole industry of uh, clinical trials. Sure, and, and Infuse's business model. Um, so I'll start with a disclaimer. Uh, the person who's generally credited or, or vilified for, for coining the phrase decentralized clinical trials is a good friend and, and Circuit board, uh, you know, a member of our board of directors, Craig Lipset, the, uh, the, um, the co-chair of the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance. Uh, and, and that term decentralized uh, obviously has a, a use in the broader market, right? We have decentralized finance, we have uh, decentralized, um, uh, well, now we have pretty much everything now, banking, everything. Uh, and, and in those, in those uh, usages, it almost invariably reflects uh, engagement of the, the blockchain um, to, uh, to create instantiation of data and, uh, and assignability of ownership, right? So, so that's the broader decentralization phrase. When we were looking for words to describe this idea of teleresearch, 
or or the ability to to provide the logistics and the technologies to allow a patient to participate in a trial away from the research site. Uh, so that's the decentralization. It's pulling the patient, giving the patient the freedom to be away from the research site for these visits and for these data collections. Um, a bunch of terms were in play. Uh, you know, again, you know, I'm not that old, I guess, but uh, but I'm old in this space. So so. DCT has really had about three years of, of consolidation, decentralized trials, clinical trials, or DCT, has, has really been the term du jour for about uh, two to three years. Uh, but if you go back a little bit before that, there were a variety of terms in play, right? Is it virtual trials, you know, is another popular one. And, and, and really the FDA came out with guidance that they want to use virtual trials as a term of art to, to think about things like synthetic controls and digital twins. So it, once that happened, it became a word that even though people kind of knew what it was, wasn't appropriate to talk about this idea of providing the infrastructure and logistical support to take trials out of the, you know, visit at the academic medical center or visit at the private research space and allow it to happen in other spaces. So that's the, you know, that's kind of the, you know, history lesson of DCT. I'm sure the comments will flood with 100 corrections. Fine by me. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the general idea, so where does circuit you know, tie into that. There are a lot of great platforms out there, um, and, and we had a ton of innovation through COVID, right? Some great teams out there that we all know. Um, and we, we looked at it and said, you know, do we want to go and try to build another one of those platforms that can allow tele-research? And, and I will say, I am surprised given how telehealth took off that decentralized trials didn't go the tele-research way, but I, I know why that is, right? It would be sort of tele-trials. That doesn't sound right. Um, so, you know, our role, we felt, was where we could add real value was because we are building this network, right? Circuit's core work is we, we've built this patient-facing platform for ratings and reviews called Trial Journey that makes it easier for people when they're looking for their loved ones to, to find uh, a path to a research center near them. That's one half the problem. And then we create new places where research can happen by partnering with non-academic health systems. And that's really where we began to think we could add some value because we're connected to lots of doctors, lots of health systems, lots of data, and most importantly, lots of patients. And so the idea is that, yes, there are companies that have a, a platform technology, and then they have these affiliations with some, some doctors, and those doctors are going to be the doctors of record around the country. This is a predominantly U.S. phenomenon right now. And our idea was that, well, if those doctors in particular represented their health systems and were able to access their patients and their patients' data, you might have the best of both worlds, that you'd have physicians who are participating as the investigators, but they're drawing on their own pool of patients as well as those other pools that are available in, in decentralized trials that find the trial via patient recruitment campaigns and things like that. So that's really where we see our, our value is we're partnered with uh, Metadata Solutions, uh, which is owned by Dassault System. Uh, it's it, uh, you know, the largest, most scaled-up platform in the world for eClinical. They run about 7,000 clinical trials globally a year. And so they're a great partner. And, and full disclosure, they're an investor in Circuit, you know, as is LabCorp. Um, I, you know, I couldn't be prouder to have them as partners and investors in, in the company. And so it's really this, we announced it at the beginning of the year, that Metadata and Circuit are collaborating. So it's a best-in-class platform for decentralized trials, that tele-research experience and the logistics, coupled to circuits, doctors, data, and patients. And that you really do get excited about, being able to, to really, as, as decentralized grows more and more common, and in particular, as it, as it becomes, trials become more hybrid, some decentralized visits, some in the offices, because people still like to go to their doctors, then I think circuit's got a role to play there. And I think that, that'll be really interesting in the years ahead. Yeah, I agree. I mean, 
given the growth of, of Circuit, could you ever, when you started, could you ever have imagined how large and successful, I might add, Circuit has, has become? Well, I, I appreciate the compliment uh, implicit in the question. I will smile and sort of say, look, we're, we have our, you know, we were our startup bona fides, uh, you know, proudly, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we like to think about it this way, that until there is a national circuit and a ubiquitous use of trial journey for patients using uh, the path to find trials and to choose them and to participate until trial journey is kind of the community of choice for patients. Um, you know, our work is just getting started. If that's the framework, I, I will sort of share that, uh, that you know, I left, I left medicine, which I loved, and I was really, you know, proud to be a part of. You know, my father's a physician. Um, my brother's a physician. You know, there's lots of doctors in the family and the aunties and uncles. And, and um, I left that with the idea that there was even more important work to do. And, and most importantly, that it had very little to do with me. Really, my role was to bring together this amazing team that we have, people like Don Fury, who came over from Operation Warp Speed at Johnson & Johnson, um, you know, um, uh, people like uh, um, uh, Dana Edwards, who runs commercial for us. So bringing those kinds of leaders so they could build these great teams that really came from an under, both an understanding of the industry and, but outsiders enough that wanted to change and build something new. I think that's my role in this whole thing. And so in that frame, I feel like we're, we're, you know, I feel like we're just like you guys. We're just getting started. We're looking at the whole space and thinking, you know, you guys are trying to unlock all of Africa's potential in clinical trials, which I think is tremendous potential. Um, and, and like us, you're learning that, that, uh, that driving adoption and, and building trust takes time. There are no shortcuts. Uh, and so we look out across the United States of America, and we've, we've gone from being a Buffalo company to being, you know, a New York company to being a, uh, you know, a multi-state company to being a Northeast company. And now clearly we are, you know, within a year or so of being a national company. That feels like we're just getting started, too. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, given that and how your expansion, how would you say partnerships play a role in supporting the expansion of, of companies like Infuse and Circuit? I, I think they're critical. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I think they're critical. I think that um, that there's there's a lot of talk in startup land about how partnerships are kind of a waste of time and they never generate revenue and they they don't solve problems. So I'll just give a few examples. All right. Um, I'll start with the University of Buffalo. Right. University of Buffalo's Buffalo Institute for Genomics, um, you know, took a huge chance on Circuit in the early days and has been very supportive of our growth. And that's been really important, right? Really, you know, brought us into Startup New York long before um, we knew anything about 43 North, right? So, so that's been a great partnership. 43 North itself has been an amazing partnership. You know, uh, we, uh, people forget this. They, they remember the fact that we won and we've never left. You know, two years later, we're still firmly ensconced like a, that teenager who won't go to college. Um, but we actually, we, we had applied two years before and we didn't make it. We made it to the semifinals and we didn't make it to the finals. And because we hadn't made it to the finals, we were still eligible to apply one more time. So that's what led to our win in, in 2019. Um, they've been an unbelievable partner in all those other kinds of ways. Um, and then more broadly, like something like Roswell Park, Roswell Park's been a partner of Circuits for years and has really gave us opportunities to understand how we could be impactful in cancer. I'm, I'm a cardiologist by training, so we stayed away from oncology until we could learn from, you know, some of the best in the world who just happened to work down the street, you know, and so very grateful to, uh, to their leadership and their partnership. So those are, those are good examples of how, uh, how broad partnerships can kind of help you from the outside get smarter and understand things. And then there's the business partnership side. So I hear a lot about this, that little companies can't partner effectively with big companies. Well, Circuit's only got three strategic partners, and they are all multi-billion dollar companies, right? LabCorp has invested in Circuit twice, and our partnership has involved them accelerating our growth across the country. 
opportunity after opportunity under the uh, the leadership of people like Bill Haas and Ben Courtley over on the drug development side, and they own a CRO, which uh, you know the idea is this perfect marriage where you know clinical trials can find patients where they get their health care with circuit operationalizing them. That's a pretty incredible partnership. I mean, just one partnership like that is is the kind of thing that can change a company. Then you layer in the fact that metadata systems, you know, uh, led by uh, Anthony Costello and uh, Kelly McKee on the patient cloud side, looked at us and saw the opportunity to really couple their best-in-class platform with our ability to engage patients and doctors where they get their care. That's been transformative for us, and we're, we're just kind of rolling into this thing, and the, the, the very cool idea of having Trial Journey integrated to Metadata Rave, the largest e-clinical platform in the world, that, that accelerates you years ahead of where you are. If you have a clear vision for what you're hoping to accomplish, um, and I'll get to sort of what makes a good partnership in a second. And then what we're really proud about, um, Melissa, talking about uh, diversity in clinical trials is we just announced partnering with NextGen Healthcare, which is this gigantic, you know, EMR um, uh, company, uh, uh, really healthcare technologies company, they, which is, you know, one of their offerings is an is a electronic medical record for that happens to serve very diverse communities, something like you know, 15 million patients between the federally qualified health centers, where two-thirds of those patients self-identifies as black and Latinx. And so it's really an opportunity to, to bring research to this at a national level to a very diverse group of uh, people, like to make them aware of it, help them contextualize it, talk about it with their own doctor. You know, so those are really kind of the things that, that make you feel good to be alive and feel like, yeah, the work you're doing adds up to something. But the key to each of those partnerships is we're obsessed about how do we help our partner get where they're trying to go, accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. So our, our belief is that if you start with a lot of empathy and you truly understand if you create any value for that partner and you pick your partners very carefully, there's a lot of great potential. But what you see most people do is they know what they want to get out of somebody and, um, and they, they look at it kind of like, well, there's five companies like this. We should do five partnerships. I personally, you know, if they say it's good to believe something usefully counterintuitive, I believe startup founders should do fewer partnerships and go all the way deep with them. And so there's a little bit of risk there if you pick the wrong partner. But the way you protect yourself from doing that is really being clear on how you can help that partner book a win. Most great companies got that way because they play the game the right way. And if you're able to create real value for a lab core or a metadata or a next gen, uh, they tend to have, you know, a great affection for those kinds of teams and, and treat them very well. And that's certainly been our experience. Awesome. All right. So Irfan, uh, we're going to do something different on this episode, something we're going to try to start doing something that is totally not related to clinical trials at all. Um, so I know you read a lot of books. So what what is your favorite book? Let's say this year. I know you read a lot of books. So let's just... Uh, this year is easy. That, that's that's an easy one. Uh, I like this book so much. I posted about it on LinkedIn because um, so, you know, I'm getting to the habit where a lot of people know I like to read. So I get a lot of book recommendations and I'll read this amazing book and I can't remember who recommended it. So this one was such a favorite. I posted on LinkedIn saying The Revenge of Analog by David Sachs is the best book I've read this year and maybe the best book I've read in years. And I can't remember who recommended it. And it turned out, you know, that's the fun thing about LinkedIn. This book is all about how once experiences become fully digital, uh, they maximize for convenience. But they, they erode the experience, the feel of something, right? And so what you see is in spaces that have become fully digital, there's been this return to analog. And, and music is the best example, right? Um, we had vinyl. Then we had cassette tapes, which were going to you know, get rid of vinyl. Then the CD came along, and that was absolutely going to kill vinyl. And vinyl sales fell to an all-time low. 
and then we got um, we got iTunes, which killed off largely the CD market and most of the tape market. Then we got streaming, which killed essentially iTunes and and uh, CDs, and um, and we got fully fully digital, and we got maximal convenience. We can listen to any song you want to right now, right? What did we lose? We lost kind of that weird thing again. I'm 50, so I can remember this, like of just like you know. You, you buy a copy of Radiohead's OK Computer, and it's big, and you're looking at the cover art, and you, you, know, you can read all the liner notes while you're listening to the record. And that was a thing. And you were more thoughtful and in the moment listening to that music. So The Revenge of Analog is all about this. And, and I bring that example up because vinyl is enjoying its greatest year ever, right? And so even though it's a smaller total portion of the market, it's come roaring back. New vinyl studios are being opened all the time. And so I posted that to LinkedIn as digital and experiences you can get. And Tom Wiley, the publisher of the Buffalo News, reminded me, oh, yeah, it was me, my friend. And I was like, <laughs> he goes, and the irony is just ter terrific here that you're using a digital medium to figure out who recommends the Revenge of Analog. So I, I, ha I have liked that book so much I've been buying copies and giving them to people as gifts. Awesome. So uh, and we wanted to thank you for coming on. It's been fantastic to have you. And I know... Melissa and I have been talking about having, having you on for a couple of weeks now, so I'm glad it finally materialized. Yes, yes. A, a real pleasure. I'm a huge fan of everything Infuse is doing and very optimistic about the impact you guys will have. Thank you so much, Dr. Efren, for coming. This has been a great conversation, and thank you for sparing 30 minutes of your time to talk with us. I'm gonna add, we're going to do something that we haven't done before. Oh, yeah, it'll be done before four minutes. Okay. All right, you ready? All right, so. Say also, it's not been on this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Wait, okay. Okay.